to MindWell, hosted by Michelle Jones. We are all about connecting with wellness professionals and individuals with unique perspectives about developing wholeness and well-being. This podcast is designed to help you reconnect to your core self and find the resiliency, capability, and strength you already have within. MindWell is sponsored by IntegrateTrauma.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of MindWell. On this podcast, we interview people who have remarkable perspectives on the power of making mindful connections. I'm Michelle Jones, and today I'm with three amazing women from Dahlia's Hope. First, we have Faith Robles, who is the founding survivor of Dahlia's Hope. I am looking forward to hearing her story and what has brought her to this work. Welcome, Faith. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure for me to be here this morning with you. I'm so glad you're here. Next, we have Kara Durfee, the Chief Operating Officer at Dahlia's Hope. She comes to this work as a clinical therapist and with a passion for improving the lives of trauma survivors. Welcome, Kara. Thank you, Michelle. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Oh my gosh, I'm getting progressively more excited as we get more of us into the conversation. <laughs> Finally, we have Sherston Stockwell, who along with her husband is a founding board member of Dahlia's Hope. She has a long history of political activism and has held key positions in several nonprofit organizations. I can't hear I can't wait to hear more about some of these experiences from you because this sounds so interesting and I'm like completely intrigued. So welcome, Sherston. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here and happy that any of my former experience led to this work because nothing nothing has been as meaningful as this. So oh my gosh, I love it. I have found that some of the most fun people that I meet, it seems like there's all these disconnected experiences that they have that bring them to the moment that they're in and into their life's work and their life's passion. So I love to hear that. Okay, let's just start at the beginning. So Faith, if it's okay, let's start with you. Will you share a little bit about your story and the work that you're doing today? Oh, yes, I'm happy to. So at the age of 13 years old, I met young guy who soon became my boyfriend. And in the next couple of weeks, he asked me if I wanted to meet his family. And since then, I never returned back home. And he brought me to the U.S., crossing the border illegally at the age of 14 years old. I arrived to New York City, Queens, and he sold me for sex from between times through 30 to 60 times a day. This is a number that the numbers of victims go through. In 2013, I attempted to escape for the first time that felt and my trafficker found about it and he beat me up to the point where he broke my jaw. Wow. During that same year, I watched a documentary that came out on Discovery Channel. It's in Spanish. It's uh, called Tenancingo to New York. And because of that, through the testimony of other victims and the Border Patrol agent, I was able to ask myself if there is there any hope for me? Will they really help me? And then the next year on April of 2014, I escaped and I made it through the police station. Yes, I was saved, but aftercare services were missing for me. 
there is a wonderful nonprofit that helped me, and I'm so grateful for them, for all of their support. But aftercare, I didn't have it for a long time because I escaped just before I turned 18. Luckily, I was able to stay in a safe home for one year. But after that, I was on my own. Uh, This nonprofit, I remember my first counselor told me after six months of escaped, she told me, you're good, you no longer need services. During that time, I was alone. I have zero family here in the U.S., so I have no one. And then during that time, I wished if I could have just a nonprofit, an aftercare program where they offer all of the services that I was looking for, for example, education, medical treatment, mental health, all of the things that I missed due to English is my third language. So back then I spoke a Mayan dialect named Chol, Spanish as my second language, and English was my third language. And most of the schools would tell me, I'm sorry, you can't be part of our school because you're underage or you're not 21 year old. And I saw that happening to a number of survivors. And I just wish and hope that there could be more nonprofits who are helping more survivors now. And there is only a few aftercare programs here in the U.S. who really offers aftercare program. But they weren't in New York. They were outside of New York and they couldn't help me. I had to go to their own state. So finally, in 2017, I had the opportunity to move to Utah. And that's where, for the first time, I met, I met Mama Sherston and Papa Matt. He speaks Spanish. And they brought me into their home. And I remember asking myself, for example, they're crazy. Why would they bring someone strange, (laughs) stranger in my house? Uh, I couldn't believe all of the things that they were doing. And I was grateful. The first night that I spent with them, they took me to Chick-fil-A. I never heard about it. And I make fun of this. Um. I thought it was Chipotle instead of Chipotle. And instead I got, instead of a burrito, I got a chicken sandwich. But that's just a beginning from our relationship. After that, I would still come over. and uh, I lived into their home for a couple of weeks. And then they found me a host family where I stayed there for 18 months. And from there... I remember just thinking, like, what I'm doing with my life. I'm going nowhere. Someone promised me a bunch of things that never happened. And I attempt to take away my life. I was depressed. I was really stressed out. And I felt hopeless. I felt like no one understood what I was going through until one day, um, I came during the springtime and talked to Mama Sherson and tell her how I felt. Okay, I have so many thoughts and questions. Faith, I'm so glad that you're here today so that I can learn more from you. As you were sharing your experience, I was thinking about when you first made this this step to 
get away in in 2013 and then you were found and brought back and thinking about all the pieces that had to come into place for you to be able to see that documentary and really to be willing to have hope again and to be like that's one of the most brave things I can even imagine is to try again to be able to step away and to leave after what you experienced so I just have to think that somewhere within you, even though you had felt all this despair and hopelessness, somewhere within you, there is so much just courage and bravery to just, I think, being willing to find hope, even amidst like terrible circumstances is one of the bravest things that people do. Thank you. Yeah, it it was hard. Um, but something that inspired me to not give away my life was, for example, I used to watch a lot of the TV and used to come on the commercials, the St. Uh, family uh, for the kids who have cancer. Mm-hmm. And I would ask myself, like, this kid knows that he's going to die soon, but he 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 just wants to think that he's going to live long enough when me on this side, I want to take away my life. And because of that, when I turned 18 years old, I cut my hair and donated. I feel like little things has changed my life. And also hearing the stories of other victims that got killed by other people, I didn't want it to be one of them. I didn't want it to be one number on there. So, um, and I got angry and I said, this is not okay. This is not what we do to a child. That's right. And I, and I really love everything that you're saying is just communicating to me and just reminding me how important it is that we need each other. We are not here to do anything alone. We need each other. And what a beautiful um, thing that we're able to see that maybe we don't even realize how much us being able to keep moving through our experiences helps someone else to be just a little bit more brave to keep to move through theirs. Okay, so... Sherston, I want to hear from your perspective now because I feel like I heard one side of the story and I, I'm not always this lucky to have both people from both <laughs> sides of the story in one space. So tell me about how you got connected to faith and how that experience was for you. You bet. So I um, had worked in various nonprofits. I, my career was back in Washington, D.C. in federal service. And when I left federal service, I was, I was in D.C. for 10 years. When I left federal service, I did pretty much with like very small, few exceptions, 100% nonprofit 501c3 work. But in the beginning, it was policy related. Um, and then, you know, a lot of the nonprofit and the fundraising world kind of begins to cross over with other different types of things and was introduced to a charity side, learned about trafficking and a partner that I had worked with previously that was from Mexico had been contacted by faith. So it was definitely like a, someone knew someone who knew someone type of a situation. Everything coming together in just the right moment. Mm -hmm. Yes. And um, so she had reached out just randomly trying to, you know, in her, her true survivor nature. And you, you mentioned Michelle, the word bravery. I mean, utter bravery. She not only, I really want to highlight something that she shared in case anyone needs this really punctuated Um, escaping once takes an amazing amount of courage and bravery 
And the fact that that one failed miserably and she not only got her jaw broken, she just got that fixed this year. I mean, she's been walking around with a very painful broken jaw forever. So the, the bravery that she demonstrated the first time and then to drum up that courage to do it a second time, incredibly rare and very, very hard to do. So she makes it to NYPD, of course, and then you heard her story. So she begins just researching things, watching documentaries, reaching out randomly. I mean, this little go-getter, right? Which I'm so, we still see this in her today, which is why her dream of creating a place for other survivors just like her is pretty special coming from her because she's actually still in treatment. So she's in treatment, which means other survivors know that she gets it. You know, she's in the middle of it and treatment could be ongoing. I mean, it could be obviously very heavy in the beginning, but you could go through life and get triggered again. Anything. What, what if you have a child? What if you, I mean, all these things can happen during life. And so being able to be in treatment, but still just being so feisty and so eager and <clears throat> attentive to this cause and helping others. So we meet through this connection. And she ends up having an opportunity to come to Utah. It was totally up to her. She could have stayed in Queens. I'm going to fill in little gaps because I know this story so well. She was not only still in Queens, which is where she was trafficked. Mm-hmm. She was in the same neighborhood still as her traffickers. Oh, wow. That's, I mean, it's a pretty big deal. So, but even though, you know, remaining or taking this invitation to come to Utah looked, you know, safer or more appealing a massive risk because if you can imagine if she leaves, you know, her home that she says she hasn't seen her home again since 13, she only knows her little town in Mexico and Queens, New York, which is all she's ever known since she was, you know, a teenager, a young, young teenager. So now let's go to an, another place and again, not, I, not back home. Right. You know? And I was going to say back, back where you were at home at 13 years old, you only understand things from a child's perspective from the place that you've come from. And I'm sure in Queen, she was not having a typical experience in terms of being able to know and understand how the city works from an adult's perspective because of all of this trafficking experience. Well, and look at all that she, like to your point, Michelle, look at all that she has lost. She's lost all of the basic, just think of life skills that you learn in your teenage years. So now she's in a big city where she's only been put to work in a way that she never wants to work again, trying to navigate. She is very grateful for the charities and the nonprofits that were out there. What she, So when she says she wanted to create her own, it's by no means, you know, an insult to those that helped her. Those that helped her did the best they could. And they had their limits and boundaries and what they could do, but she's piecing together, right? She's piecing together all that she can. So she takes this leap of faith to come to Utah. And it was my husband. I mean, I, obviously you can see that the very nature you see in her today was there on day one. You can tell that there's not, we had nothing to be afraid of in our head. We're thinking, okay, is there, I mean, I had a three-year-old, two-year-old, was she two faith at the time? Yeah. Um, You know, and you're just wondering about like, okay, is there going to be something, you know, is there going to be any violence? Is there already going to be an exposure to something? You know, is there going to be an emotional breakdown? You know, you're thinking of these things and I'm not a therapist. I'm on the nonprofit fundraising side. I don't know anything, you know, I'm stepping into And My husband was connecting with her right away and he looked right at me and he said, she needs to come home with us. We knew that we were trying to find her a permanent situation you know, at my home, we had my parents living with us and all these children. We definitely like switched rooms a bit and got her in. 
and we were looking for a permanent host family. And that's something that Kara will chime into um, in a moment. But one thing that we learned early is that that family model is really conducive for therapy. And we were really looking for a host family, not to put her up in a temporary housing, um, a hotel, an apartment. So we looked and she was with us for three or four weeks. And obviously the connection um, was strong in the beginning. And my husband just could tell, he just, he knew. And I know that they had that language in common. I don't speak Spanish. And I was really grateful. And everything that we felt and he felt early on has 100% stood the test of time. She's a member of our family now. My kids call her their sister. I mean, it's just the sweetest thing. And even though we found this host family that had hosted, you know, um, a young Latino, Latina girl before, like they, they really were well-prepared and equipped for it. She would still come, Faith would still come and spend weekends with us and go on vacations with us. And so it wasn't that far away. So when she talked about this dream she had of creating a, a place where survivors can go, there was just this one night <clears throat> that I talk about all the time. She um, had come to spend the weekend with us. It was the spring of 2019. She was different. She was upset. She was emotional. She was passionate. And she said, I need to help other survivors, you know, and she'd said this all along, but, you know, and I've said to her a lot this last year or two, I'm so sorry. I didn't catch that you meant right now. She was in the middle of her trial. She didn't have her GED yet. I never assumed when she was saying, I want to help survivors, I want to help survivors, that she meant right now, everything from my perspective and from the feedback we were getting was contingent upon this trial finishing. Um, which just did last year. And so I had no idea. So finally this one night she was repetitive. She says, we need to help. And I got the memo. I'm like, she means right now, you know? And she says, they will trust me. They, I know what they need. I know that they're waiting for services right now. And it ha- and these are the, these are the pillars of Dahlia's Hope. It has to be one place, one place. They don't have to piece together a place over here will teach me English. A place over there will get, help me fix my job. A place over here will give me therapy. That is so hard to navigate for someone who's gone through complex trauma, who was very likely a child when they were going through it and trying to figure out a system that's in America and you're not from this time. I mean, think of all the things that she had to try to figure out. So she was pretty sick and tired of it and said, one place, one. And it has to be easy to find. I can't have to search and search and search. It needs to be easy to find. And so that's another thing that we do is we try to keep ourselves very, very easy to find. And then this whole idea about it being survivor-led. Um, I might know how to do nonprofit fundraising. Our other founder, you know, runs an accounting firm. He knows how to do all the 501c3 accounting. You know, we've got Kara here who's amazing. I mean, she's she's not only clinically certified and has all of her hours and is a clinician, is a therapist, but she's actually run entire organizations before. And so we like cherry picked and grabbed her. We just got her this last year. So we're super, super grateful. But everything. I didn't know the survivor piece. I only knew what I knew. And so to listen to these survivors and to have them tell us what they couldn't find, what they looked for, what was missing, what they were told. They actually went through the system, what they were told to be told after a couple of therapy appointments that you're good. Hey, you're lucky. You're good. You at least got a few. That's not enough, you know, and telling her that while living in the same city, the same little community as her traffickers. No way. There was no place for her to go you know? So the next morning I told my husband, I said, we need to do this. And I said, I, let's just figure it out. I mean, I'd worked for nonprofits, but I never started one, you know, a startup is no joke, let alone a startup nonprofit. Absolutely. And it happened to be tax season. And we already had an appointment with our tax accountant, who's Chris Anderson, our other founder. 
And we go there for our appointment because, you know, this is March. And at the end of the appointment, I just said, hey, Chris, um, have you ever set up a nonprofit? Do you know how to set up a nonprofit? He says, yeah, I can help with that. What's on your mind? And I tell him about Faith's, this conversation that we had just had. And he gets emotional and he says, I'm all in. And, you know, it just boom. And then literally we're, we're kind of at our two-year anniversary. It's a, we have two anniversaries. We received all of our 5123 status and our articles of incorporation in the summer of 2019, but then it, you have to get all your licensing to treat survivors. And so we weren't able to begin treating until December 1 of 2019. So we're just about to hit that two-year anniversary um, right now. So these past couple of years, the, the momentum, the exactly what Faith said happened. She said, there are survivors, they're in need, they have nowhere to go. Um, we had no idea if we would be a big or a small program. And again, that's something I'll let Kara speak to the size of us and what is out there and what is not out there. We just knew we were going to start. So anyway, Michelle, I'm sure I gave you a lot to Which is, ask. I was going to say, sometimes just starting is like the bravest step. I mean, I feel like that's like a theme in in our conversation today. So I come from a background, I'm a pediatric nurse by 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 profession, so child development like comes into my mind almost immediately as we're having these conversations. And then also I'm a mother. I have two college student kids and a 13 year old actually. And to, to, to think about all of the development and learning and understanding, and it's really such a mentoring time for kids as they learn how to become an adult and really seeing how powerful that family connection must be to be able to help kind of fill in the gaps. I love how I've learned through trauma. You know, sometimes it can be really discouraging. I had a lot of childhood trauma and sometimes I would feel discouraged, like, okay, look at these people who had X, Y, and Z modeled for them. And I never did. So I guess I'm just like out of the loop forever. And now I understand like, no, that's actually just like, those are just skills. I can learn those skills and be in exactly the same spot as everybody else. I just have to go and figure out how to learn them, which honestly, navigating the mental health community can be really challenging, even if you have a lot of support and skills. It's not something that's easy to navigate. So like you just add the magnitude of not knowing how to navigate things, not knowing how to navigate the culture and trying to find that this is you're exactly right, Faith. Like this is exactly what people need. It needs to be easy. And like having everything in one place just doesn't happen. That's not something that people are able to go, whether it's because they've been trafficked or because of, you know, something else in the mental health field. This is not something that is easy for people to get the help and support that they need at a time when they need it most to be easy and straightforward to navigate. So I can feel the power in that. And I've experienced firsthand trying to navigate it for people that I love to walk alongside people and to feel that frustration of saying this shouldn't be so hard. It shouldn't be so hard for us to get this care and support and resource to people that are such in such desperate need of getting that help. I definitely see the beauty in that. And also another word that comes to mind, I'm going to add to add to the word bravery, faith, and add tenacious. Like you are going to figure it out. That is like definitely a theme that I am hearing and it makes me adore you even more. So I love that. Okay, 
Kara, are you ready? I've got a question for you because we're really talking about aftercare and putting all the services in one place. And I have a feeling that a lot of our listeners don't really know what aftercare means. Like, what do we mean by that? So what are some of the services that Dahlia's Hope is providing? Yeah, I love that question um, because aftercare is something that as mental health professionals kind of makes sense to us, but people who aren't doing this kind of work might might not know what service, what aftercare services mean. So really when we're talking about aftercare services, we're talking about services that, you know, kind of a group of services that we can provide to people after they have escaped their trafficking situation. So, you know, you heard Faith's story and it's remarkable and, you know, her bravery and her ability to um, escape that situation and and even to have the foresight of knowing that she needs services, that she needed help, you know, some survivors takes a while before they get to that point. But escaping the trafficking situation ends up being, you know, as much courage and bravery as that takes, it ends up being um, just the beginning. It, because really there is so much trauma healing that needs to take place after the situation. So the aftercare is really those services we can provide to support healing. Um, and so Dahlia's Hope, we we have a plethora of services. So the pinnacle of our program is clinical therapy. Um, this is the only service that really is required by all survivors to participate in because it's very important that the trauma is being addressed. Trauma is so impactful. So we do require all of the survivors to be participating in individual therapy, clinical therapy, but with a focus on trauma healing. And we do use best practices for trauma healing um, in our program. That is something that is really important to everybody at Dahlia's Hope is that we have highly skilled, highly trained professionals doing this work. We also offer group therapy. That sense of community that you can get from working with other survivors who maybe understand what you've been through and can relate because, you know, Faith talked about feeling pretty hopeless, depressed, and even suicidal, feeling as though nobody understood her situation or what she's been through. And so that group component, that group therapy component is critical to creating this sense of community and a safe space where survivors, you know, feel understood and heard. And that's a huge part. Yeah, Yeah, very powerful. So powerful to feel like. And I would imagine such a healing component in terms of understanding that you're not broken and to help with like any components of like shame too, because being able to speak openly and to be met with empathy and compassion is so healing. But we really can't do that if we have no opportunity to share in a way that can be met with love and acceptance. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's so important. And we really do hear from survivors that, you know, the the group therapy is really meaningful for them. Um, We also have a very robust recreational therapy program um, where we have activities going on every week um, with a focus on building up their social, emotional, spiritual um, well-being. And we have great participation in the program with the REC therapy program because a lot of these survivors 
you know, we're robbed of these opportunities to learn healthy recreation, to have these, these, you know, quote, normal experiences, you know, or opportunities to recreate. And so we, that's critical to our program is, is recreational therapy. It's not optional. As far as Dahlia's Hope goes, we, we knew that we needed to have recreational therapy to help promote healing. Um, the survivors, though, do get to choose whether they participate in rec therapy. Most of them do choose to participate because it is so, um, it just facilitates so much healing and that community again, because a lot of the rec therapy is group therapy, but we do even um, offer individual recreational therapy. And then we try to help the survivors with um, developing their own personal recreational therapy programs that they can do on their own and kind of guiding them down that, those healthy paths of recreation. Well, it's, and then, I was oh, going to go say, because it's part of like stepping into a whole life, right? Like I have connected with people who have experienced complex trauma. So not necessarily the same situation, but it seems like there's a common thread here, which is if I've spent so much time in survival mode, one common thing that I hear is I don't even know what I like, like, like fun. I don't even know what that means really. Like, sure, I can kind of laugh along with other people, but how do I figure out what I enjoy or even what it feels like to relax and do something just for the enjoyment of it? And yet that is part of what we want people to have for 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 their healing is not just an absence of the negative things, but the ability to feel and experience joy in life as well. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Healthy recreation is kind of a luxury, right? And when you're in survival mode and you're, you're just trying to get by day to day, you don't have that luxury of recreating or knowing what you like. So a lot of it is just trying new things and having new experiences and realizing, you know, activities that you enjoy doing or directions that you might want to take your life through our rec therapy. Each of our survivors are also assigned to case management. And case management is something that is critical to the services that we provide. The case manager kind of follows the survivor throughout the course of their time in our program and helps connect them to resources both within Dahlia's Hope or outside of Dahlia's Hope. So kind of like faith vision for a one-stop shop, a place where a survivor can go and all of their needs are going to be met. Our case manager is kind of the one helping to guide and direct the survivors through our program. And then, you know, if there's other resources in the community that we want to access, they, the case manager can access those with the survivors. So the survivor is not having to retell their story, um, you know, to every agency that they're trying to work with. Um, we try to meet as many of the needs internally as we can. But, you know, we do um, also take advantage of our community resources and our case manager to help the survivors navigate those problems, those programs. Because as you mentioned earlier, it can be tricky navigating the mental health system um, for anybody, you know, especially somebody who has endured complex trauma. Well, so, and, and it seems like faith you are having to be your own case manager and figure out how to do all of these things at the same time as trying to figure out how to stay safe, literally, in your community. When yeah. English is a third language, I just want to throw that out there. 
ahead. Yeah. So yes, and the other thing that and I still do is that some survivors still contact me because they know that I'm not afraid to to reach out a nonprofit and ask them, "Hey guys, how do you help a survivor? What services do you uh, provide?" The survivor need to be in your state or you can help them remotely. And that when I find information and share it to other survivors that they're still in New York or other cities, they get excited and I get excited with them. And I'm like, yay, we found something. It's just like it gives me happiness and joy in a way that I can't even describe where I'm like, I wish I had this option years ago mm-hmm. and now that i have it i try to help other survivors because i know how hard it is to find services even legal resources the other day a survivor and i we were talking about it and i help her and i'm like yep contact this person and she was like wow okay so she gets excited because i was able to tell her contact this person and that's how i worked even um after after i escaped there was these survivors who were scared to ask for help and me all be like, hey guys, I know these survivors, they're not going to ask you for anything, but this is what they need. And they would come and say, okay, she, we know that she can't talk for you, but we are here to help you. Please tell us. And they would talk to them and they would get what they needed. Faith, there's something really beautiful about you having to figure out this experience on your own and yet finding so much joy in really having a passion to know that nobody else needs to do it alone, that you really can see that and that you want to lighten that load for the people that come behind you. I think it's so beautiful. I really love that about the work that you're doing. Thank you. Can I chime in about something about her? Oh, I love it. She really is such an um, approachable balance because you, we've all talked about a lot her, this bravery and this fighting spirit and tenaciousness and all of that, but she is simultaneously so willing to learn. And that's a really, really important thing because, you know, survivors, especially if you're of legal age, you don't have to stay in a program learning and treatment and therapy can can address some tough stuff. And, um, it takes, it's work. Yeah, it's work. And it does take the bravery that you talk about, but it also takes kind of a meekness, kind of a willingness to go there and to trust. And, and she, she really does exemplify, um, both sides. You know, she definitely has this feisty side to her and I love it. I love when she just gets a bee in her bonnet and she just wants that, you know, and I love that. But simultaneously, if we have to talk about something, it could be a Dahlia's Hope thing. It could be something with her schooling. It could be anything. She will look you in the eye and she'll listen and she'll try. She'll go there with you, you know, and that's a trait that's really important. And, and it's also a really good example for the other survivors. She does have a chance to rub shoulders with, because keep in mind in our program, our survivors don't necessarily have to know other survivors if they don't want to. They can stay very private. Um, the ones that want to come out to a group thing together, their choice. You know, it's their choice. And so when the survivors do happen to rub shoulders with each other, it's a really nice example to have faith demonstrating willingness to do the hard work, willingness when things are hard, you have to be a little more humble on it and maybe not, maybe kind of suspend some of those reactions you're used to having that we're only there to protect you, right? But just, and just try, you know? And so there, there really is this gentle meekness to her 
exact same person who has that feisty fighting spirit. You know, it's, it's, it's really beautiful to see. And I'm very confident that is why, um, that healing is effective for her, you know? Yeah. And, and I would say too, as, as I'm listening to you guys speak, I love to see how it's very clear how you all feel about each other. And I love that. The other thing that I was thinking about is how important choice must be in this work that you are doing with your survivors, like how you said that there's choice in if they want to participate in the group, there's choice in which recreation activities, because Faith, I imagine that choice wasn't something you experienced really almost at all for many years. Uh, no, I didn't. In fact, I was always told how to dress up, how to have my hair, how to do my makeup. Because of that, I got to the point where I'm like, I, I can't have a long hair. I have to cut it because they make me feel in this way. Now I wear red lipstick uh, just to, to show that they no longer have power on me. Um, the other thing that I remember telling my traffickers was that one day I told them I'm going to put behind bars. And I remember both of them looking at me angry. They were drunk. And they say, what did you say? And I'm like, well, that I'm going to paint your pants and you will never notice that because I knew that they were he, they were going to come and beat me up. And yes, I did send behind bars my traffickers and I faced them in court. And now I'm getting ready for the sentencing and I'm going to uh, work on the victim impact. And I'm going to tell them, you don't own me. I'm not what you said that I was. That's right. You don't control my mind. That's right. She said something I think she should clarify. So the red lipstick piece, um, it's interesting. We would assume that people that had to do any form of sex work would wear lipstick like that. They actually wouldn't let the younger people wear it because it made them look like a prostitute. So they controlled everything from what she looked like, her haircut, what she put on her, every single thing. So now she's saying, hey, at this age, if I want to wear red lipstick, I can if I want to. And she was able to, when she went to court and faced him, you should tell that how you, <laughs> you dress however you wanted. <laughs> yeah, I dressed up however I wanted. Black and white, red lipstick, did my hair like today. Papa Matt went with me in the court and he saw the traffickers there. And something that I was told, don't look on their eyes, my traffic, my therapist told me and I'm like I did it sorry so that's <laughs> it I'm told don't do it and I still do it but at least I remember saying he's not looking into my eyes my own trafficker my boyfriend that's what he said oh well, for a long time and his uncles so I was trafficking a big freak of traffickers they were at least like six traffickers one of them mm. plead guilty and the other five did not. So I had to testify against five. So I'm like speaking against them, looking at their eyes. Two of them did made eye contact. And I remember feeling scared. And then at one moment they said, no, I came here to say what happened to me. And I'm not alone here. Papa Matt is with me. My lawyer is here. The other survivors are there. So, and I had stuff that could remind me that some other people were play, praying for me and that they loved me and they, that they were waiting for me back in home. So that was at least excited. Emotionally, I was devastated. It was hard. That's not an easy job. 
after I came back from the court, I had to go back to therapy again because it was hard. Oh, I can only imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and then I had to go to work the next day. Like, <laughs> no break. Do, right? No break. But that was the best. Like having a job after you testify is the best thing ever because at least my brain didn't sat down with all of those emotional memories or flashbacks that I had during the court time. So at least that was nice. Oh, yes. I Yeah, I can't even imagine. That is such a remarkable, like I can just picture the whole scene in court and you, you know, our listeners can't hear me, but I'm like cheering with my fist up in the air, like, yes, go Faith, go. Like, even though I wasn't there and I can't go back in time, if I could, I would have been in there cheering for you and staring them down. Like, don't even try to be intimidating to Faith because you have so much support now that you never had before. And I absolutely think that 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 is exactly as it should be. Like, it should not be such a scary thing to stand up and speak the truth about our own our own lived experiences. And we're not there yet as a society where we make it so that it's not a scary thing to speak the truth about what we've experienced. So thank you for being part of the team of people that are leading the way and making it more okay for the people that follow after you to speak the truth about what they've experienced. Thank you. Michelle, I want to add just that, unfortunately, Faith's experience where she was able and willing to testify and put her traffickers behind bars, unfortunately, is not the norm because so much intimidation and threat and, you know, coercion and threats um, are part of the trafficking experience. A lot of survivors do not have the will to go through that and relive a lot of what they have been through in order to achieve, you know, what they did and, and putting traffickers behind bars. So unfortunately, that doesn't happen as much as we would like for it to happen because, you know, it really is highly, it's re-traumatizing. And, you know, Dahlia's Hope, that's, that's something that we can provide and we do provide for our survivors. Also, I'll, I'll finish kind of I was going to say question earlier. I completely <laughs> interrupted you. So tell me more about uh, you're, the no, services. You're good, but yeah, I mean, connecting, we don't, we don't directly provide legal services, but we do have great relationships with some amazing organizations that offer legal assistance for free. But we also offer that emotional support for survivors who might be going through that legal process. And, you know, we've had therapists sitting in with in depositions, whatever, whatever support the survivor needs throughout that process, we are with them every step of the way. Um, and, and really with all of our support, our survivors through our case management program, we're, we're able to do a needs assessment for all of them and figure out, because all of our survivors have very unique needs. No one survivor is exactly the same. And so we're able to do a needs assessment and we can really individualize the treatments that we're providing and ensuring that we're helping to meet each of their needs. We also have a therapeutic farm with goats and pigs and chickens and bunnies and horses. And this is a place for animal assisted therapy, just a, an escape, 
the farm, it's like impossible to be on the farm and not leave in a better mood. I say that every time that I go there, even if you're in there scooping poop, you know, you're still leaving the farm um, in a better mood than when you got there. It's such an, an amazing space for healing and connection um, with our amazing animals there. And a huge problem that we have for um, the trafficker or the trafficking survivors face is housing difficulties. It can be, um, you know, very difficult to get on your feet again. And housing, safe and affordable housing, is a huge part of that. So, Jolly of Hope does offer a transitional housing program. We do have a transitional house um, that has spaces specifically set aside for survivors who have housing needs. Um, that is a critical part of our program because we, we have noticed a lot of our survivors are facing housing problems when they come to us. Um, we also have medical, dental resources. Really, as I mentioned before, with case management, we can connect with survivors to any and all programs in the community as well. Um, you know, we have a relationship with Western Governors University, and they have offered our survivors scholarships to their PACA program. So we, we have a lot of connections in the community and, um, you know, really have created um, what Faith really had in mind when um, Dahlia's Hope was founded. Okay, so that, that actually reminds me that I never did ask, where did the name come from? You guys want me to cover this one or? You go for it, Kara. Yeah. Well, so um, Dahlia's Hope, Dahlias are um, the flower of Mexico, and I don't know if you know a lot about dahlias, but they are big, beautiful, um, resilient flowers, and because they came from Mexico, um, that's kind of where we got the dahlia. Um, we had the dahlia in mind, um, and then obviously hope was a critical part of um, this, this entire path, right, was a place that can create hope. And for faith and other survivors, knowing that there is a place where they can come get services for free, um, they don't have to worry about paying for these services, and they don't need to worry about retelling their story to you know six different agencies. They can get all of their needs met in one place. It's a very hopeful concept. So the dahlia flower um, is just so meaningful to us, and is the logo of Dahlia's Hope as well. And I can kind of give you a little bit of information about, um, about that logo. But really, when you look at the Dahlia flower, you can just draw so many parallels to our survivors. It is such a diverse flower, and we have such diversity in our survivors and their stories and, you know, the ways that they were trafficked and the things that they've overcome, that diversity is so important. Um, the Dahlia flower can endure intense heat waves. Unlike other flowers, it can survive, you know, the brutal heat of Mexico. And we like to think of those heat waves as the complex trauma that our survivors have endured. Um, you know, our survivors are like these beautiful dahlias. They are resilient. They can survive and they have survived these, you know, heat waves of life, this trauma, and they're on the other side. Um, you know, dahlias can grow to be very large, you know, a foot in diameter, oh, wow. you know, yeah, some of these dahlia flowers are, are very large, their stems can be, are hollow, and they can be, you know, six to eight 
um, feet sometimes. And so when you are dealing with such a large flower with a hollow stem, um, you sometimes have to stake these flowers so that they can grow properly. And we like to think of Dahlia's Hope as kind of a stake around our survivors, you know, giving them the, the services and resources they need to, to grow properly, to display their beauty. The Dahlia flower is also, um, it blooms way longer than other flowers and, um, you know, stays bloomed longer. And we really see that in our survivors too, that, you know, they're, they're going to bloom longer as well. And so there's, there's a lot of symbolism. Let's we talk also about have the colors. Yeah. Our logo. Yeah. So do you want to talk about the colors in the logo? Yeah, that's fine. We just, we, as we researched it, you know, the main draw was because it was the official flower from the country of Mexico. So that was kind of the main draw, but we were just continually pleasantly surprised at a lot of the symbolism and we just knew, right. It was just kind of coming together, but the different Dahlia flower um, colors have different meanings. Like you could go to Google and you sure. can read this yourself, but the um, most of them are positive, but, but one, the, the first one, the center of our logo is a dark color. It's a dark burgundy. It's called, there you go. It's called uh, the black Dahlia, even though it's a burgundy color, but the black Dahlia is the one negative color and it's betrayal. It means betrayal. So obviously in the middle of this beautiful flower, what stemmed from betrayal was beauty, right? Um, and what they've done with it. So the black dye is a center. But as you go to the purple color, um, I mean, so many meetings, dignity, royalty, you know, the purple dahlia. The um, the blue-green color, They the blue dahlia or the green dahlia have the same meaning. So we kind of picked a blue-green color that could hit both. But that means a new start, a fresh start, turning over a new leaf, a new life, you know, all those great things. And then red, of course, is strength and courage. So we thought, you know what? We have to have all of them. We have to have our logo start with that betrayal, but bloom with each layer, with all the growth, with all the change to become all those things, you know, beautiful, strong, you know, just that dignity and all those, those fresh starts and all the courage. So we love it. It just, it kind of came together really quickly with a couple of just research deep dive days and we were just done, you know? Yes. And I love this idea that even if betrayal is where this journey has taken somebody, that is not the end of their story. And that to me is the, is the hope part. And hope is probably my very favorite word. I got super lucky because I live on Hope Street and hope is just one of my very favorite words. And so I think it is the key to almost all the good, all of the good things to be able to take a step forward in trust and in hope when maybe past experience tells us that that's pretty risky to do and to do it well, anyway. Michelle, she, we initially were going to call this Dahlia's house. And it was faith who says, no, this is more than just a house. It has to be hope. It has to be more, you know, so I'm glad you brought up that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Tell me, I've got um, a, just a couple more questions. What are some of the biggest needs that Dahlia's Hope has right now? Anybody who would like to take that. Yeah. You know, Dahlia's Hope operates solely on um, donations. And so something that we always need are donations and you can go to dahliashope.org forward slash donate. And there are lots of different options for donations. You can do a one-time donation. I'm a monthly donor. I think that, you know, that's a great way for the average person to be able to give to Dahlia's Hope. 
is, you know, you can just pick an amount anywhere from five to $50 a month, whatever you can afford. And those recurring donations are super helpful for us. But we are always looking for donations. Um, you know, the generosity of our supporters is what makes this possible. And so that's, that's always a need that we have. And let me, let me piggyback on that because, you know, you guys obviously heard that I come from an experience. My background is in fundraising and working with nonprofits. Something that donors like is when their whole donation goes to a, most nonprofits have a percentage that it goes to. It's kind of a, a wish, a hope to keep your percentages like 80 cents of every dollar going to a non, going to directly to the cause. And that's like a sweet spot. You're always trying to hope for that. We have the option for donors to give directly to clinical therapy, which wow. if they give specifically, if they earmark it for that, it's 100% of their gift goes to clinical therapy. So a lot of people ask, gosh, what can we do to help? If you're local, you know, to where we are, there's certain, you know, certainly volunteer days and service hours. And you know, we have a fantastic volunteer army for sure, but nobody can be in therapy with a survivor that those, those are private. Those are hard. Those are, you know, we've got these amazing, amazing clinicians that, that do this hard work with them. They give us fantastic rates. They take their private practice rate and they cut it down to a nonprofit rate and we're still getting their amazing skill set. So believe me, we have worked really hard to put together an amazing team, but that still is the number one expense in our budget is clinical therapy. So you can give to the general Dahlia's Hope general fund and rest assured that 80 plus percent of the donation does go directly to survivor care. But that, that 10 to 20% gray area is going to be things like, you know, food for the horses. We have to make pamphlets and brochures sometimes. So we definitely want to keep the percentage for the general fund, at least 80% or more goes directly to the survivor. But if they want to give specifically to clinical therapy, you know, it's called restricted funds. They earmark it just for that. 100% of their gift goes to survivor aftercare, which um, you don't hear about that. You never hear of that nonprofit world. So I had to, I had to insert that here. No, I love that. And so it's dahliashope.org forward slash donation. And you guys are also on Facebook and Instagram as well. Definitely. And it's donate, not donate. Thank you. Uh Donate. Okay. So don't make my mistake or just go to (laughs) dahliashope.org and you will find your way there. Um, And then you guys are located in Utah. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. Okay. So before we kind of wrap things up, I was kind of interested to know, are there some common misconceptions that people have about sex trafficking? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, I think the biggest misconception is that it's not happening in our country, right? It's not happening here, not in America, not in Utah, not in Arizona. Sadly, it is. It's happening, you know, all over our country. And Americans are consumers of sex trafficking, are perpetrators of sex trafficking. And it is happening. And, you know, it it originates in our country as well. It's not, you know, Faith Story is one where they they brought her across the border. absolutely happens um, far too much. However, you know, as, as far as if you look at our survivors, um, our census and the survivors in our program, the rest of our survivors really, you know, were trafficked here in the United States by someone from the United States. So I think that's a, a really important misconception to clear up. And then I, I would say, and I'll let, I'll let the rest of them chime in. My second one would just be that there's this misconception that it's, you know, this scary criminal that 
comes and kidnaps you and takes you away. And that's how it happens. But really, it's generally happening by somebody who is close to the victim. So a spouse, a partner, a boyfriend, you know, parents, even 40% of child sex trafficking happens at the hands of a family member. So it is people who are close with you who are, you know, using force, fraud, coercion to um, get you to participate in, in these behaviors. So I think that's important to note too, is that it can happen to anyone. And we have survivors in our program who were trafficked as adults, um, you know, by spouses, partners, boyfriends. Um, and it's not just something that happens to children or that a scary looking criminal um, is the perpetrator. A lot of times people close to you that, um, that are able to manipulate victims. Which is where that center of the Dahlia comes in and why it's betrayal, because this is not just a stranger that snatches and grabs you off the street most of the time. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Um, before we close, I just want to give each one of you a chance. If there's anything else that you would like to say that you haven't had a chance to say yet, because there's so much that we could talk about, right? There's so much and we've only touched on just pieces of the puzzle. So I just want to give you the opportunity if there's anything else that you'd like for our listeners to know or to understand a little better. Yeah. So something that happened not to just to me, to the other survivors is that society judges because of what we went through. They would call us nicknames and I don't like that. And if we don't, I don't like, and I didn't like also when people used to come to me and ask me what happened to you. And then I would tell them and they would say to me, it's your fault. You could have run away. Nobody could have kept you in captivity. That really made me feel upset, unrespected. So because of that, I learned which people, which type of ethnicity to tell my story. Um, the other thing is, please educate your kids on human trafficking. There are wonderful trainings. There is uh, one that offers ECPAT USA. And it's appropriate for the age of uh, high school kids, teachers, parents, and can learn that, including the kids. And it's appropriate for their age. I help them to create some of the uh, training. So I do recommend that one. By doing, by educating the kids, the teenagers, we are going to prevent more kids to be trafficked. Just hear me. We're going to prevent it. If that happened, the kids, they will know what they can do to ask for help. Mm -hmm. If we don't teach them, it's going to happen to them. And then that means that we need more services for those victims. And if we don't want anyone else to go through it, please teach them. I totally understand this is a hard subject. What do you prefer? Someone that comes and teach your kids or do you prefer to come and teach them, right? Uh, the other thing is that I would ask to the audience, please, if you have any resources that you can provide to our survivors, please contact us, send, uh, call us, send us an email. So in that way, we know that you're there and that you want to help us to, write, to provide hope. Hope means more than just one word. Hope means that 
you get to change one life and not just one. You can change more than one at the same time. Because when I watched that documentary and inspired me to find services for my own self, I'm being able to change more than one life because of that. So please share this information to anyone. Follow us on your social media. You never know if there is someone who needs our services. You never know if someone is going through a hard pain now. And we might be the only solution or we can help them to find the services that they're looking for. There are survivors out there that they can't speak out like I do. Me, I'll go out there and say, hey guys, I need help. But there are survivors that they don't. And also I speak Spanish. If there is any survivor who needs help, some persons on my team to speak Spanish as well. So we can help them. And like, please consider to donate to Delia's Hope because the donation is going to support survivors and it's going to make a big difference. It's not like other nonprofits where you don't know where your donation is going through. Here, you will know for sure that it's going towards a survivor to work on her healing and tell them you're not alone. Someone cares about you and is helping to pay for your therapy or for you to continue working on your healing. Faith, just hearing you speak helps me to understand just a little bit better how this idea and desire of yours to create this has come to actually come to pass. So thank you. Kara or Sherston, any other thoughts? I think Faith summarized that really well. Um, you know, educate yourself, your children. Um, prevention's huge. And go to daliashope.org and please consider um, becoming a donor of ours. I like that Kara touched on the monthly donation. We've got high school kids who just have five, 10 bucks a month come off and they skip McDonald's for a month. You know what? I mean, they just, it's the easiest thing to do. And, and what you need to know about that is that a nonprofit, when you look at the little tiny monthly donations, some people wait to give one big gift. Do not wait to give one big gift. Um, I've, I've seen it in my, in my experience, nonprofit work that 40% of donations are small onesie twosies that are just little, I mean, it's a massive part of our budget. So please consider that. I also wanted to just touch on one thing that Faith was saying um, about the different organizations that are really great. We love to collaborate and partner with other organizations. We shared with you here what we do, clinical therapy, rec therapy, you know, group therapy, case management, medical, dental, housing program. We've named what we do, but we have awesome partners that help with legal work. Um, we have awesome partners that help us with law enforcement. You know, we don't, the trafficking umbrella is so massive. So we have chosen specifically survivor aftercare, but that does not mean that a survivor doesn't need help with legal issues. And so we've got these awesome partner organizations that that's where they shine and we help connect them to that. So we, I definitely wanted to make sure that it was stated here that we have awesome relationships to really cover the gamut of what these survivors um, need to do to, to be restored back to uh, you know independence and self-reliance. That's the goal, independence and self-reliance. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. I would like to thank Faith, Kara, and Sherston for joining us today. And thank you, listeners, for joining us on MindWell, the podcast that introduces you to exceptional individuals that are developing powerful, mindful connections. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of MindWeld. We are sponsored by Trauma Integration, LLC, a company passionate about helping people understand their trauma response and find wholeness within. You can find out more at www.integratetrauma.com. Thank you.